Amen. Good morning. Wonderful to see all of you. Again, if you are new here or watching online, I'm Pastor Mike, and these are certainly interesting times that we live in, to say the least. Very, very interesting times. We've currently been going through the book of Exodus, but I felt like this morning, in light of everything that is going on with the coronavirus, that I should speak to that specifically. And so that's what we are going to do. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Verses 1 through 14. I'm going to read the passage first in its entirety. Then I will pray and we'll get into this morning's service. This is the word of God. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, I come before you this morning, and I'm so thankful that you have spoken. Lord, I'm thankful that you are a God who is active in history, working to save men and women. Lord, I thank you that you are not a God who is far off. Lord, I thank you that we are in trying times like these, we are those who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit so that we know that you have not lost control, but rather you are in control. We can trust that we have a high and holy calling during this time. 
that we are called to be witnesses to Jesus and His kingdom in such a way that many are saved because of such times. So I would ask for a blessing now on your word, on the teaching of your word. May it equip us and prepare us to do your work, to be who you want us to be during this time. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I come before you this morning during a time of not just national, but global catastrophe. Isn't that amazing? Not just national, but global catastrophe. I remember when 9-11 happened. I remember right where I was. How many of you remember right where you were when you first heard about 9-11? I was a student at Calvary Chapel Bible College in Marietta, and one of the things we would do there as students is we had an M199, and that was called Practical Christian Ministry. That's what an M199 was. And so M199 was designed to teach you that Christianity and Christian faith isn't just for going to church and teaching the Bible and praying, it's for everything that you do. And so my M199 was a particularly high and holy calling. I picked weeds. That was my M199. I literally picked weeds. I dug ditches and picked weeds. It was just, it needs to be done. It's practical. Many people don't think of that as being something that's particularly holy, but it is. Anything that we do for the Lord is holy. Anything that contributes to the good of society and the betterment of others is a good thing. And as Christians, we are called to do such things. So I was doing that very thing. I was picking weeds. And there was a radio on. And suddenly the radio broke from its normal programming to share with me the news about the Twin Towers and the terrorist attacks. I remember I was just in total shock. I was thinking, what do I do? Should I go join the Marines? Like, what, what do we need to do? What's going on? And at first I was just sort of rattled. And then I started thinking and I started praying and, and talking with others. And over the course of time, God started to reveal to me what my particular course in life was going to be. But as radical of a moment as that was, that was national. It wasn't all the nations of the world that were trembling at that moment. It was ours. But here we are this morning, and all the nations of the world are trembling. All the nations of the world and the most powerful people in the world are scrambling to get a hold of this. This is, make no mistake about it, however it turns out, is a monumental moment. And how we respond to it, therefore, is highly significant. It is quite a surreal moment in many ways, and yet it's really happening. I want to suggest to you this morning there are two viruses that we face together. There's the coronavirus, and there's the virus of fear. Let us make no mistake, these two viruses are related, but they are not the same. What is actually happening at the biological level regarding the coronavirus is not identical to how we individual persons and countries respond to it. Those are two different things. No doubt response is good and necessary. We must be wise. We must not only react to present circumstances, but we must be proactive in addressing the potential effects of the virus. However... As the virus of fear and panic sets in, 
new problems and new catastrophes that are man-made are now taking place on top of the biological problem of the coronavirus. And so this morning we need to address not only the coronavirus, but the virus of fear and panic. Let me begin by giving a sort of summary of what is going on right now regarding the coronavirus. As of 6.41 a.m. this morning, according to the Center for Systems Science and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University, there were 156,400 confirmed cases of coronavirus globally. Confirmed cases globally. The top 10 countries with the most cases are 80,995 in China, 21,157 in Italy, 12,729 in Iran, 8,086 in South Korea, 6,391 in Spain, 4,585 in Germany, 4,481 in France, 2,952 in the United States, 1,359 in Switzerland, and 1,143 in the United Kingdom. Of the total number of cases, 5,833 have resulted in death, while 73,968 have reportedly totally recovered. Now, according to the World Health Organization, 80% of those who actually contract it will only have a mild disease. So I, when I look at this, I'm not a doctor, but people look to me as a pastor for some kind of general sense of guidance, and I see two particular things. On the one hand, we have to take it seriously. The way it's spreading globally, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Started in Wuhan, China, and now it's all over the globe extremely quickly. So it's highly, highly contagious. We have to take that very seriously. On the other hand, if this is correct, that the World Health Organization said, but 80% of those who actually get it will have mild symptoms. So I think we have to take that seriously as well. That means that those who are elderly, those with respiratory problems or other underlying conditions that compromise their immune system, those are the people we need to be most concerned about in our communities. But for those that are younger and healthy, it seems like 80% of the time, it's not going to be anything other than, quote, a mild disease. But at this point, I need to address the second virus that is spreading even more rapidly than the coronavirus, and that's the virus of fear and panic. Uh, most of us have probably heard, and perhaps some of us joked about it, you've heard about toilet paper selling out everywhere. Has anyone seen this happen? I've been to the store, toilet paper gone. Uh, there's little memes on social media of like one person, and they've got a cart, and literally toilet paper is stacked like 15 feet high, and then the guy behind him has one thing in its cart, and it's a case of Corona. <laughs> so it's like, you know... There's different ways of looking at this particular disaster. So we laugh about toilet paper selling out everywhere. But drivers on the road are behaving even worse than they normally do. And if you live in Southern California, you know that's pretty bad. Then after that, of course, water. Water is starting to disappear in many stores. Then medicine aisles, if you haven't noticed, are starting to be cleared out. Then various other products to the point where entire shelves and aisles and stores are being completely emptied. 
people are behaving erratically towards others in the store. I've experienced this myself with people ramming their carts, with other people actually turning their carts sideways in the aisle so as to block you from getting by while they get what it is they want. In extreme cases, there's been reports of fights breaking out in stores, including a report of a man being stabbed over water at Sam's Club in Texas. So let's make no mistake, this kind of behavior is not necessary and it is detrimental. It is making a bad situation far worse. I think it's why some of the stores, at first I was annoyed, they were saying, no, you can only have two cases of water. And you're like, well, my family on a normal week goes through more than that anyway. But I, I appreciate that because somebody has to get in control of the hysteria. And it seems to be, again, I use the word virus of fear, but if you haven't noticed, it is contagious. Some of you, maybe you're already the type, you're, I mean, you're scared when everything's fine, <laughs> you know, and now it's like the, the worst thing that's ever happened. But to be honest, I think if even those of us who aren't normally fearful by nature, when you see everyone around you freaking out, you almost go, is like that the responsible thing to do is freak out because everyone else is. It, it makes you second guess yourself. Man, I'm not stocking up on toilet paper. I'm not stocking up on water on that. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not wrong for freaking out. So believe it or not, this really is, there is a virus of fear. And so how should we as Christians respond to this present chaos? And I would say the answer for us is that we turn to the Word of God. And so I've chosen what is seen by many as an end-of-the-world text, Matthew 24. And I've done so for two reasons. First, our present predicament has an end-of-the-world kind of feel to it. I mean, they're shutting down the NBA, they're shutting down Major League Baseball, they're shutting down all, uh, all kinds of things just left and right, travel bans being enacted. My brother, who currently pastors a church in London, was out here for a conference. The conference got canceled, and he was having a hurry to try to get back to his family in England before his flight was canceled. I mean, there, this is absolutely, it's got this feel. And for those of us that like movies, you might remember there's a movie called Outbreak years ago. It was actually a very good movie uh, with Dustin Hoffman. But it's like, you're, it's surreal. You're seeing this, this kind of bizarre stuff and nobody knows. Experts don't know. Is it going to be a few weeks? Is it going to be a few months? The stock market's falling. All this kind of stuff's going on. China is now threatening to withhold life-saving drugs, which made me look up and I found out, I didn't know this, but we can't manufacture penicillin anymore in the United States. We do most of the world's leading medical research, but we outsource the manufacturing elsewhere. They're actually threatening to withhold penicillin, antibiotics, and even apparently they produce 70% of the acetaminophen that we use. So all of a sudden, all these other things are coming to the surface and it really makes you go, wow, this has an end of the world type feel to it. It's bizarre in many ways, it's shocking, it's unpredictable, and it creates a sense of complete vulnerability. And that is why people are behaving as though it's the end of the world. The second reason I chose this text is precisely for the opposite reason. I think this text teaches us that this is not the end of the world. 
And in fact, I believe this is a text that directs and equips Christians to be faithful followers of Jesus during this present crisis. So let's see what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us through his word this morning. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple, and Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So here in this text, the disciples are concerned about eschatology, which is our fancy technical term for last things or the study of the future. Since Christians believe in a God who is transcends time and is sovereign over everything in creation and he is actively working within it to bring history to its climax christians have a field of study that no other science can offer the science of eschatology the study of last things and so the disciples are asking about this jesus tell us about the future tell us about when you're going to come back tell us how we're going to know But what they did is they actually asked two questions. The first one was, when will the temple be destroyed? As Jesus just predicted in verses 1 through 2. Pay attention to that. And then secondly, they asked, what will be the sign of Jesus coming and the end of the age? And so Jesus gives his response. So for the disciples, many have argued, and they're probably right, they didn't see these as two different questions. In fact, in the Greek, it's, there's one question. It's just one question, and it's lumped together. Jesus said, see this temple? And they're right there, right, looking at it. And Jesus says, it's all going to be thrown down. So for them, the throwing down of the temple and Jesus' return were kind of going together. But that goes along with the very original concept that there was only going to be one coming of the Messiah. That seems to be something the disciples, no matter how many times Jesus said, hey, the Son of Man's going to suffer and die, be flogged, betrayed, and go up there and be crucified. And they're like, okay, that's not possible. So so can I sit next to you when you reign in your kingdom? Because for them, there wasn't two comings. Very, very, again, we can say in hindsight, hindsight's 20-20, we can look back and go, how come they didn't know there was going to be two comings? Well, if you don't have the benefit of the New Testament, I can see how that's very hard to understand. So for them, these two, are, these two questions are lumped together as one. But in our translations, I actually think this is probably, at least theologically, this is right. We made two questions out of it, at least in the translation before me. So we know that the first question was fulfilled historically in 70 AD. 
as the Roman general Titus sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. So we already know that Jesus is a trusted source with reference to the future. Jesus predicts the future with 100% accuracy. And part of this has already been fulfilled, and that's amazing. Because that was something where, and again in life we all have this, we all have a temple of Jerusalem in our lives. Well, what do you mean? What, what do you mean I have a temple of Jerusalem? We all have something we can see and we cannot fathom that it could ever be taken away. Whether that's our relationship to a parent, a relationship to a child, a husband or wife in a marriage, your job, your finances, your health, a certain industry, the United States being a leader in the world economically and militarily, it's sort of like that's a temple and we just can't imagine it ever being destroyed. For American Christians, it's usually easier to picture the end of the world than the end of America. It's easier to believe, well, no, no, God would never let America fall. Like the end will just come. Even though Christians who've lived before us had to live through such things. Christians living during the Roman Empire had to live to watch it collapse. We all have a temple of Jerusalem, something that we just can't believe will be destroyed. So they were unable to hear this, but history bears Jesus out as being faithful to predict the future. So that is already done. Now, interesting, interestingly, what Jesus actually does here in this section is to tell the disciples when his coming won't be. Notice that that's what he did right here. He's telling his disciples when his coming won't be. He says that many false messiahs and corruptions of orthodox Christianity will take place. There will be wars and rumors of wars, nation against nations, famines, diseases, and earthquakes will happen in the future. And when these things happen, many people, including followers of Jesus today, may be tempted to believe that it is the end of the world. But look what Jesus says. But the end is not yet. In other words, the witness and experience of events like the ones Jesus just described will have the feel of the end of the world. Do you see that? He's warning them. Because when these kinds of things happen, they're going to feel. See, they're Christians. They believe in God. They believe in eschatology. And it's actually because they believe in eschatology, they're expecting the end to come. And Jesus knows that when these kinds of things happen, they are likely to see it as indicating that the end is coming. And he said what he said here to warn them that that's not the case. It'll have the feel of it, he says, but it won't be. Instead, Jesus compares such catastrophic events to a woman in labor. How does... That's good to know, ladies. Jesus understands what labor is like. In labor, and again, I, I remember I've grown up in the church and I've heard the Bible and I've, I've heard this passage and, and our church was always way into prophecy and eschatology, so I've heard this as far back as I can remember. But until you actually see your wife going through labor, or even for you ladies, until you actually give birth you probably don't quite understand what Jesus is saying 
as much as you will once you've had that experience. You see, in labor, contractions build and subside. They build and subside. They build and subside. And slowly but surely, they become closer in frequency. Slowly but surely, the intensity becomes greater. And so while it may feel at times like this is it, Jesus says it may not be. When a woman's in labor, again, sometimes you feel like, I remember, you know, my wife kind of like, is this it? Is this it? Am I going? I'm like, no, okay, okay, it's calming down. No, no, we thought that was it. Here it comes again. Oh, no, no, no. You know, it just builds up and the intensity at certain moments can feel like this is it. But then it subsides. But what the contractions are a proof of is that the baby is coming. For Jesus, then, such contractions like the coronavirus, are not proof that the end is upon us, but rather a guarantee that he will come at some point. The word sorrows is literally translated birth pangs. It's a direct, literal reference to the process of a woman giving birth. And so the key text for us here is this phrase, see that you are not troubled. What does Jesus want you to do when these contractions are coming upon us? What does Jesus want us to do when it's starting to feel like, oh my gosh, this could be the end? What does he want us to do? Freak out and buy all the toilet paper. That's in verse 20. Wait, no. Okay, Uh, wrong translation, I guess. No. See that you are not troubled. There's two commands here. This is not a suggestion, folks. This is not good advice. If you're a follower of Jesus, this text commands you to behave a certain way. See that you are not troubled. So two commands. The verb to see is a command. And to not be troubled is also a command. Jesus is telling you and I that disciples must see the situation rightly. Many people right now are not seeing the situation rightly. They are abandoning their integrity. They're abandoning their love for others, their care, their concern. Things that are eternal, things of God, the mission of God, the mission of the gospel are being set aside. Panic and animal-like instinct is kicking in for many people. That's not seeing things the way Jesus commands us to see them. As followers of Jesus, we must see this differently. If we're not seeing it differently, there is something seriously wrong. The second command is, do not be troubled. Do not allow yourself to be troubled. The word for trouble is thraeo. And it can be translated to be disturbed, to be disquieted, to be alarmed, and to be terrified. Do not allow yourself to go there. That's a command for all of us this morning. Now let me say this, because we're not all made the same. 
I know some of you, as I've said, already have a tendency to fear anyway, just in life. This can exacerbate that. Other people, I realize, they're the opposite. They have a tendency to not fear anything, even when they should. It's one of the reasons why it's so important, however we do it, whether it's meeting in person or online, we stay connected because we balance each other out. Even though this coronavirus is happening and we're being advised, and, and I'm not against it, but we're being advised to follow all these various protocols of distancing and things of that nature, yet nevertheless, Proverbs still says that a person who isolates themselves seeks their own desire, they rage against all sound judgment. So can we do both? Can we somehow acknowledge that biologically speaking, yes, there needs to be some distancing? But can we also acknowledge that if that for you means I'm going to go hide in a corner, I'm not going to stay connected to anybody in the church, I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to read the Bible, and I'm just going to watch conspiracy theory YouTube videos 24 hours a day while sipping my own urine through a straw. Okay? Now, if that's you, that's really, really bad. You bought up all the straws, didn't you? In all seriousness, it's vital that we stay connected to each other. It is a part of how we obey Jesus to not allow ourselves to become troubled. The context of the church, the context of God's people, the various personalities and constitutions of which we are all made serve as a corrective to one another. That's the big thing I'm seeing now is people who've already isolated themselves. Before this disaster, they already, I don't need church, I don't need fellowship, I'll just read weird things all the time and have no accountability or connection at all. And then this just exacerbates it. That is not what God wants us to do. Now, because each one of you are different, I'm going to just put this out there. You need to be accountable to yourself and to others about how much news you're, you're consuming. Some of you, it's like, I can watch a few hours and I'm fine. Some of you watch 30 minutes and you're freaking out. You're all made differently. You're going to handle it differently. Again, if anyone is not taking it seriously, Again, we need others to remind us, hey, no, I know someone who got sick, and, and it's, it's really bad for them. Oh, my gosh. You know, even though in terms of percentage, it's real small, but still, 5,000 people plus have died. That means there's families of 5,000 people mourning right now because of what's happened. So we don't want to treat it like a joke either. But as disciples, this is Jesus' word to you this morning. See that you are not troubled. Now, in this next section, we are starting to see that which is not just the chaos common throughout human history, but that which will be particular to the end. Look at verses 9 through 14. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end 
will come. So what I'm saying here is that this is a different section than that which went before. The purpose of the first section was to warn us not to freak out that it's the end of the world when normal catastrophes, as bad as they are, and as novel as they might be in the specific, yet wars and rumors of wars and famines and diseases are common throughout history. If you read world history, you'll know how often that used to happen in the ancient world. So he wants you not to freak out about it. But there is going to be an end of the world. At least Christ is going to bring history to its climax. And there are some particular general signs which will signal that's the case. What we're told here is that there will be one day a worldwide persecution of Jesus' followers. Are we seeing that right now? I would say no. Is there persecution of followers of Jesus in the world today? Yes, absolutely. And to be honest, I think there's always been a place. In 2,000 years of church history, some more, some less, there's always been a place where Christians were being persecuted. Some more, some less. So what we have pictured here by Jesus is, is not the norm. It is an unprecedented worldwide persecution of believers. It's like the entire world turning against Christians. And it sounds like that when that heat is turned up, it says that many will betray one another, and in the context, it seems to be referring to those in the Christian group. That there are many so-called Christians whether they are or not, but at least so-called Christians who will turn on each other. In other words, when things get worse, when it's not advantageous to be a Christian, many will begin to turn on those who stand faithful to Jesus. At that time, the sheep will begin to be separated from the goats. And if you study church history, you know that persecution has an, a marvelous way of doing that. In the early centuries, when Christians began to be persecuted, they would be ostracized from work, they could be physically beaten, they could be put in prison, and they could even be killed for testifying to Jesus as opposed to offering incense to Caesar and saying, Caesar is Lord. We saw that when that happened, it started to reveal who's sincere about following Jesus and who's not. Because there's many other reasons other than true faith in Christ and his gospel. There's other reasons. There's benefits to being a Christian besides eternal salvation. There are temporal benefits to being someone who follows Jesus. But when persecution comes... It's like a fire and it begins to burn away those whose commitments are shallow. Those who are fair-weather disciples. I'll follow Jesus when I've got lots of money. I'll follow Jesus when everybody likes me. I'll follow Jesus when it's not going to cost me anything. When suddenly that is no longer the case, we will start to see who the true followers of Jesus are. You can know who you are spiritually by how you respond to times such as these. You want to know who you are? 
Watch how you respond during this time. And don't think when this passes, and Lord willing it will, and Lord willing soon, but don't think when it passes and we can all move on with our life, that your behavior and the way you thought and your value system, the things you stopped doing and started doing, don't think that all magically goes away. That will be a revelation to you of who you really are and where your walk with Jesus actually is. And that's not a bad thing. Because truth is, if our faith is revealed to have much impurity, I welcome that revelation. Because I want my faith to be purified. Don't you? I, I want that. Again, is it going to feel good if, I, if the Lord reveals, oh, you don't trust me as much as you thought you didn't? No, of course not. But I thank God for it, just like a medical diagnosis. I don't want to hear a doctor say certain things to me, but if that's what I've got, I want to hear it. I want you to diagnose it, even though it's going to be hard to hear. And situations like these catastrophes are a diagnosis of our spiritual condition. Who are we when these things are happening, not after? Now, the rest of this text goes on to supply us with great wisdom, and I want to point out three things. Number one, it says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Again, as I've already said, seeing everyone else lose their morals and integrity and turn into selfish animals is going to tempt you to do the same thing. Because lawlessness, anarchy, whether that's anarchy on the broad social political scale like people talk about, or even just personally, your integrity, the things you say you believe in, that, that you value, your hierarchy of values. You know, oh, I care about the Lord, I care about the gospel, I care about the church, I care about other people, but then you see everybody else not caring about any of those things, and so you go, well, hey, I'm going to do the same thing. Look at these lawless people, and they seem that maybe they're smart. Maybe you're tempted to believe the lawless people are the smart ones. Hey, if you have to cut people off, if you have to steal, if you have to hoard, whatever it is, hey, look at the lawless people. The love of many will grow cold because they're going to be tempted by these lawless people. We need to make sure that our love does not grow cold. Number two, it says, He who endures to the end will be saved. We must adopt an attitude of perseverance. We have to have an attitude of perseverance. You know, God alone knows the future, but we have to have an attitude of perseverance. How many races can you finish if you believe you can't? How many jobs are you going to do if you don't believe you can do it? We have to have an attitude of perseverance. We have to believe that, look, God's ultimately in control, but I am going to do everything I possibly can to work through this time for the glory of God. I'm going to do everything. I am going to persevere. I'm not going to quit my Christianity at some point along the way. I am going to follow Jesus no matter what it costs me, no matter what happens in the world, no matter what decisions are made that are out of my control. I am going to follow Jesus. And for me, that's non-negotiable. Number three. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Christians, we have a mandate in times like this. 
a mandate not to hide our heads in the sand, but to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to show the love of God and to continue to teach the word of God. And that is what we are going to do here. There's a great scene in Lord of the Rings. Do we have any Lord of the Rings fans here or online? Throw it up. So Lord of the Rings, it was this great scene. I remember watching this scene with, with my dad about a year or two before he passed. There's this scene when Frodo is with Gandalf and the Fellowship of the Ring, and they're in the mines of Moria. And this is right before the orcs start chasing them, and they're scared, and they're freaking out, and there's going to be this giant demon called a Balrog, with a pretty cool-looking thing with the, the whip and everything. And Frodo has this heart-to-heart -heart conversation with Gandalf. And Frodo says to Gandalf, I wish none of this ever happened to me. I wish the ring never came to me. And Gandalf's reply was, so do all who live to see such times, but that's not for you to decide. What's for you to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. None of us ask for this. None of us want it. I wish it didn't happen. I wish it didn't come to us. That's how anyone would feel right now. But it's out of our control. What we can do is decide what we will do with the time that is given to us. And let me suggest that what Jesus wants to do is expand his kingdom through us in this time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we praise you and thank you that you rule over all things and hold them together by the word of your power. We thank you that nothing escapes your attention. We thank you that even though we can't always make sense of why things happen, even though we wish with all of our hearts certain things would not happen, yet, Lord, we trust that you are able to work all things together for good to those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And so, Lord, I just pray we would press into the purpose of your kingdom this morning. I pray that eternity would be at the front of our eyelids, that we would labor right now more than ever to spread the truth and love of your kingdom. I pray that we as Christians and as a church would love one another as you told us to do. You said that it's in your love for one another that the world will know you are my disciples. So I pray through this time, Lord, as we're planning for ourselves, our individual lives, our families, we would think of one another that we would be prepared to lend a hand to one another. That we would see the ministry is not just for the pastor, it is for the Christian. We are all called to gospel ministry. We are all called to love our neighbors. And so I pray we would be prepared and see this as an opportunity to love our neighbors. We pray that you would bless and provide for us, not just so we can survive, but so that others can thrive through us. We pray now for a blessing over this time of response 
we pray that by your grace you would change us, mold us into our image, purify our hearts. If there's any impurity of faith, burn it away with your holiness. And we pray that we will be prepared to live for you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.